0: Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that introduces you to some of the top talent in the world of cybersecurity.
1: Hello and welcome to No Password Required, a podcast dedicated to exploring the minds and personalities that make up the field of cybersecurity. I'm your host, Ernie Ferraresso, and with me, as always, is Jack Clabby, cybersecurity attorney at Carlton Fields, PA in Tampa. On the podcast today, we'll chat with Melissa Dark the founder of Dark Enterprises, a nonprofit dedicated to developing, supporting, and stewarding cybersecurity education at the secondary level. Dr. Dark has worked in cybersecurity education for over 20 years, including several at Purdue University. Melissa, we look forward to a great conversation, but first, hello to my co-host, Jack Clabby. Jack,
2: good day to you, sir. Oh, good day to you, Ernie. It is uh, officially springtime in the great state of Florida, so Looking forward to getting outside and looking at my phone on a park bench.
1: You know what? I, I, I think that's what most of us like to do. Because um, I, I think we did have we did have uh, spring. I guess it was uh, last Tuesday. Um, and we're moving back <laughs> into we're, we're moving into uh, back to uh, warm and, hum, and humid times. But hey, such is life in
2: Florida. I was listening to podcasts uh, and doing a little yard work, uh, and I, I had a whole bunch of like yard stuff and like you know palm tree leaves and i was i had earbuds in not super f- fancy ones but ones i like and one slipped out of my ear and fell into this muck <laughs> and i spent <laughs> so i maybe did 20 <laughs> 20 minutes of yard work and then another 30 minutes of looking for my earbud in this that i could not find it so and it's it's gone now Lost i've got one ages. earbud so i've been a more attentive listener uh, as of late uh, with, <laughs> with only one earbud <laughs> only one earbud and I, I think it's going to eventually stop working cuz it won't pair with the other one. So that that never used to happen with the fancy over-ear uh ones you I had, had before. You never had that problem. So yeah. I'm getting there. Uh wh- yeah. one one story that we should talk about for a little bit is the uh, <clears throat> in Florida, you know, there's all sorts of, of, of uh fun sort of fun crimes and alleged crimes that we talk about <laughs> involving <laughs> alligators, alligators and whatnot. <laughs> But uh, there was some crypto news, some crypto, alleged crypto theft uh, recently in the news. So the local uh, Fox Channel reported on this uh, in Clearwater that there was an arrest made of a, uh, a guy in Pinellas Park, which is, you know, Clearwater area, Florida, uh, who was accused of stealing almost $600,000 of cryptocurrency. He was a cybersecurity analyst who Was alleged, and, he, <laughs> and this is all alleged, so uh, yeah, you know, yeah. g- innocent to proven guilty in our, in our system. But he was working in the home office. Uh, and the allegation is that you know, he was, he's a certified ethical hacker and a cyber certif- cybersecurity analyst. And he is working at this home office setup. And The allegation is that he took the hardware wallet that contained cryptocurrency private keys, I guess, and took it with him when he left the home. He had it access to it allegedly because of the work he was doing there and then suddenly the, the cryptocurrency that was you know the, the client in the client's possession shows up in wallets that are in his possession his possession and so he was arrested and according to the public reporting is that the blockchain analysis you know saw that the crypto went to places that he controlled and that he had taken control of the uh, the hardware wallet. So that's the allegation. So he was arrested on, I think, two counts, one grand theft, and the other is offenses against computer users. And looking at, again, according to the public reporting, you know, maximum terms of, of 30 years in prison. So pretty pretty serious stuff. I mean, really, it's two alleged crimes. Crime one is taking the hardware, this little dongle that contains the private keys. Yeah. And then the second crime is accessing that, that hardware wallet and then... Going in to wherever the crypto is being held and 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 moving it, so you have so, two separate crimes: stealing a hundred dollar, um, you know, uh, yeah, a bit of dollar. hardware. Yeah, and then the other crime is the six hundred thousand dollars worth of crypto. They'll never know, too. That's the it, other it, piece of it. Is this, it. If this happened the way the cops say it did, you know, how what was the plan to get away with you, it? yeah
1: yeah Yeah. exactly well he would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those you know meddling kids
2: that's right those um, kids in there and their blockchains be exactly specifically <laughs> they, they say where off. everything went to an nth degree of
1: exactly of- well that's a, i think there's a couple of things that are that are really uh interesting about it well first though um maybe you can help me so 30 years in prison is that um because you know if you just look at it is that because of the amount of money that's associated with that because he like I said he took something like as big as your could be as big as your airpods case yeah um with within itself is no no value uh and but but then the the crimes against computer is that is it because it was six hundred thousand dollars this is
2: this is an old trick from the police beat uh and and you see it because (laughs) a lot of these grand larceny statutes have very high maximum penalties Because it also is, you know, maybe the same thing you would charge if someone stole a billion dollars, yeah, versus six hundred thousand dollars of the crypto, which is what's alleged here. And so you do have this all-purpose statute, but in reality, I don't believe that the sentence would be anywhere near thirty years. Yeah, they're going to throw this throw this guy in the clink for uh... a lot less. And and you know, again, it's all allegations; it it may not be the case. But yeah, you you think about it, right? You took uh, these this Trezor, um, most of these hardware wallets. I think this was a Trezor one. Yeah. according to the news article, they're worth about 100 bucks, And so you could say, okay, well, okay, that's one alleged crime is taking the thing that's worth 100 yeah. Uh The other crime then is accessing – what you're really doing is you're taking password or private keys that don't belong to you. Yeah. And you're going to another website where the crypto is actually kept and you're pretending to be that person and you're creating a transaction that ultimately that, – it's the transfer later of the money or of the funds – uh, that have an equivalent dollar value. Uh, that that's the real sort of crime. There, and so that's where you would where you'd have. And I it. think
1: one of the things that's really it's it's fascinating to see the evolution of all this because I can remember when it, it, when crypto kind of started taking off and there was this big oh it's all going to be it's all this dark money and and you're not going to be able to track it and it's going be and and now it's turning out that it's actually it appears this is a lot this is actually easier to track than than currency money because yeah. the, because the the way because the actual technology that suppose behind it that supposedly made it quote anonymous and mysterious is actually that the whole point of it makes it so that you can track it
2: That's <laughs> right yeah the thing that makes it useful is the thing that then once you figure out how to get into these wallets down downstream you know I, there was no public reporting on whether the money was recovered i guess they can sort of Maybe they make a deal, or, or they offer a deal, or something, and, and the money needs to get returned. But it's getting access to that that wallet, you know, unless the cops got access to whatever password, whatever private keys are controlling those ultimate ending Bitcoin or whatever crypto wallets. Yeah, because that's the other piece of it is if you have if all this money ends up in places and people lose their private keys to it, yeah. Yeah. Then you have all this. If you believe that crypto has value, then you at the end of it you have all this stuff that's just lost. Like it's it's a cash that it's gets like, left behind. It's like it's like when you put a hundred dollars in your back pocket, uh, Ernie, when you're out with your buddies,
3: because yeah. you want to well, have a yes. way of getting
2: home if things get crazy. This is you, not me. This is you. I'm picking. <laughs> it. And you've what? got it in your back pocket, and you just say, you know, and then you forget you have it, and a couple of months later, you're putting your your party pants on again to go out you're there, like, and you hey. say, whoa couple of rounds on the big guy here, paying yeah, for the night right. out. But it's found money. It, it is weird. To, it, so if it has X amount of value, like if you think of crypto as having X amount of value in any, you know, because we know how many tokens are issued. If a certain, you know, 2% of those are going to be lost, that raises everybody else's value. So it doesn't really create a lot of incentive to make a smooth recovery system.
1: Well, the, yeah. So, and in, in this, so is this like, are you going to, are we going to start having... Um, you know the the Bitcoin treasure hunters, where they like looking for lost shipwrecks, yes. but they're looking for it. looking for lost unrecovered uh, wallets and such. Where they oh, that's a great
2: business, Ernie. That's yeah. a great. That, somebody should start that business when they, I, I, the um the Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost, crypto but it's wallets. it's also like, don't neglect physical security. So I yep, I yeah. took uh, a couple months ago, I took a uh, an iPad, I think so. One of our kids had damaged an iPad in some capacity and I brought it in to, to be repaired to a, to a place that had been recommended to me but was not a name brand iPad repair shop. And so I walk in and the guy has a number of open boxed iPads out there for sale. And I, you know, the spider senses were tingling. <laughs> and I'm there with like a seven year, it's me and a seven year old and we're in this place and I'm like, all right, well, I'm gonna at least see what the transaction is. And I, and he says, it'll be $100 for me to fix the, the broken screen on, on this iPad. And I said, okay, well how does a transaction work? And he goes, well, you give me your your password to, to to access your your iPad. We then and I was like, that's step one. Why don't you just replace the, the screen? Like, yeah. he says, Why do
1: you need to have the data?
2: I need the password because I need to uh, I need to a- access it at the end and make sure it's all working. And I was like, wouldn't you just plug it in, it'll charge. So we had it we had a, a something of a back and forth here and, and I ended up not not per, not going with that establishment <laughs> but I, I would like to engage with one of our listeners to see like is that a legitimate you know if you were a let's just hypothetically say you were a legitimate repairer of ipads just to fix the screen a crack cracking the screen do you need the password to the device not the apple id but the password to the device and the answer might be yes and i might have just you know i might not have understood the transaction but the Neglecting that seems, seems
1: a little strange. I it doubt. does. I don't. Yeah. I, I had some yeah. questions,
2: but at the same time, he said, "Look, if you don't want to pay the hundred dollars to fix it, you can buy one of these opened Apple uh, iPads that I have here." In this, I was like, "Oh, yeah." And how did you acquire you, all <laughs> <But,
1: laughs> well, I can tell you, this nice watch here, too. <laughs> that's
2: right. But don't <laughs> neglect physical security. We, we we talk about it all the time. But that's you know, it, let's say let's say the facts are as the police said. There, we don't know that, yeah. that that's the case, but let's say it's true. You invite. Someone to come into your home to work on your computers and to, you know, provide some some security. This is the security person you've let into your house. And so at some point you have to have some degree of trust, um, but it's physical security. You could have the most like these, um, you know, these hardware wallets for keeping your private crypto key. That's fairly state of the art. I mean, that's it. That's air gapped from your computer. It's not a soft key. It's not a, a warm key, whatever they call it, where it's residing in a physical application. It is a separate device that is entirely not attached to your family's network. So, Mm -hmm. If you're going to have a lot of money in crypto, this is not a bad way to go security-wise. But then you can't just leave it out where people can get access to it. And then I don't know how the password works on that device, but somehow the allegation is that the password would have been recovered here. So physical security is still important. And if you're somebody who writes down your passwords, don't leave them right by your computer, Ernie. Right? Yeah.
1: Not, I would never do that. Isn't it like
2: every picture that's ever taken of Mark Zuckerberg? The, the idea is like people always scrutinize that they zoom in on it to see. Yeah, if they, he's they his password on it is
1: probably yeah exactly the sticky right there on it. Oh, but it celebrities, is.
2: I think celebrity There have been celebrity examples whose Twitters have been uh, have been compromised because they have done something like that, where they've just yeah. left visible their. Uh, yeah, we're going <laughs> to talk in a few minutes with, with Dr. Dark about you know, some of the work she's doing in, in, in the high school space for um, curriculum development. But that's another thing that a lot of education, uh, you know, they'll, the educational systems like a, a school district or an individual school might buy access to software and then not, we a have student username and logins and then not change the default login. Yeah. So yep. it's going to be a student admin, student admin last default. name and grade, admin default. <laughs> yep. And, yeah, you know, that's, I don't know what, what you want to get in there and mess with the kids' grades, I guess, but. It would be more, <laughs> I, I don't know. So, but you, you, you have, um, you have a lot of fiscal security, but with this crypto stuff too, in particular, it's a lot of, I mean, it's money. It's, it's like having it's a safe a with having, as a guy from New Jersey, I've been inside some walk-in safes where people keep, you know, that's, yeah, that's a feature. Yeah, 600
1: grand. That's a big, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's like a wheelbarrow full of cash, yes. um, you know, and if you had 20s. Um, and yeah, you had the You're gonna lug a 500 pound safe, and now you can have you can have an unlimited amount of money that you can carry around in something as big as your iPhone, <laughs> um, and and the the actual key is probably something as big as an as an airbud, and you people are worried about losing that. That just seems like yeah. What happened? Well, I dropped That's it. it. <laughs> and, and it's oh, by the way, it's gone.
2: And you have yeah, it Whatever happened to the old days, if just gold bars buried in, you know, end zones of high school um, football fields. Just exactly. keep it that yep. way, you know, that our grandfathers kept their money.
1: Th- that's right. The, the mattress, just put it in their coffee cans.
2: But it's a, it's, it's, it's it, some folk, you know, look, to be fair to the crypto industry, I mean, I think there's growing pains with any sort of yeah. new currency. There aren't a lot of new currencies, but we've seen a whole lot of them in the past couple of years. New things but of
1: value. I think that's, yeah. The, yeah.
2: But yeah. I think, you know, it, it is no safer or not safer than cash, I think. You know, it it is, it it but can be in the in certain circumstances a heck of a lot more traceable, Ernie, as you pointed out. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And I, I just, I, uh, it, it'll be interesting when they, uh, if they, if they do try chart uh, tie this guy's uh, sentence to the the value of the, the wallet. <laughs> Uh, he better start praying that uh, that crypto tanks and uh, well, it turns out he only <laughs> stole sixty bucks.
2: But uh.
1: right, what's the day that we? I, I don't know
2: the answer to that. Is it the day yeah. that we evaluated the day of the, crime or is it the day That's that's a yeah. good question, I think. And yeah, crypto like, takes off of
1: six hundred billion dollars. Oh, I'm, so, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. We have to extend your sentence. What?
2: What happened? It turns it's, out to crypto. It's something, <laughs> but there's been. I mean, there was a lot of coverage of yeah, the the lost crypto. Private keys is the really hard yes. stuff. Is that's the yeah. one where everyone tried to do the right thing, or they bought crypto early on and forgot about it, and now Another they're trying key. to remember what you know who were they dating, what TV shows were they into, exactly? They, what,
1: <laughs> what was that? What was the phone number that I can use for this password? It's Bosco, yes. right? Is it Bosco. Bosco. Bosco? Bosco. The
2: code man,
1: give me the code.
2: <laughs> the code, but I mean it's the it's the solution. It's. um, you know, if you use a, a a software application password keeper, you know, then it becomes about protecting that the password to that device. And yep. if you have an air gapped token uh, password keeper, which again is supposedly you know, really one of the state of the arts here for security, where do you keep it? And That's who, right. who yeah. knows the password to that? And what would happen if you passed away? Right? Where is your digital yep. uh, will for all these things? So, lots to think about if you are. If you are are, uh, in the crypto community and you're thinking about keeping your stuff safe, is you know there's risks, uh, there's costs and benefits to the different methods by which you can keep your stuff based. And it was really good to see. I mean, again, innocent proven to guilty, but it was really good to see the um, the the sort of Clearwater police taking on something kind of sophisticated and cool like this. It was a cool headline to see, I think. Yeah, I would.
1: That, that's one of the things I'll be interested to see as it kind of shakes out. Is learning more about the investigative process that they went to to, to track this down because th- that is that is really remarkable. Here we have a, uh, you know, a local police department doing uh, potentially doing some pretty sophisticated uh, blockchain transaction analysis, which I would say even a year ago you wouldn't have seen any local departments uh, yeah. even attempting to do any of this stuff. So that's if they're if they're getting into that space, like, that is good for them. Uh, it's good to see that they can actually do something.
2: With it. Good. If you, what do they say? That's what the um, what is it asked Al Capone? You know why do you why do you rob why? banks? And he says banks, that's right. that's, where, that's where the money is. That's right? where the money is. But it's good to see like the the sort of major crime squads understanding that six hundred thousand dollars of crypto is the same as six hundred thousand dollars stolen from a safe. It's exactly, value. it's a value. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk to
1: uh, our guest Melissa Dark about how her life in higher education letter her to a new
0: life in secondary education. Stick around. Looking for more No Password Required content? Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at No Password Pod.
1: Okay, welcome back. Our guest is Dr. Melissa Dark, a cybersecurity educator who has a passion for teaching the teachers. Melissa, welcome to No Password Required.
3: Well, thank you, Ernie. It's good to be here.
1: Well, we're really glad, to, glad that you could spend some time with us this afternoon. Uh, we know that you are uh, uh, up in a cooler climate. Um, so for those of us down here in Florida, we I'd say we empathize,
2: but we kind of don't. <laughs> Melissa, can you tell us a little bit about your current role uh, at Dark Enterprises?
3: Mm, I can. It's a nonprofit that I founded. I founded it in 2015. Um, I was doing it part-time while I was still a professor at Purdue. And then in 2019, I decided that maybe this is how I wanted to finish out my career. So I retired from Purdue. I'm full-time here. It's a, it's a small nonprofit. And so that means that I am the janitor. <laughs> I, I'm the CFO. I'm the CEO you know, you get to do it all when you're small.
2: Head cook and bottle washer, correct? Correct. How did you, maybe just walk us through your career. So how did you get, um, how did you get where you are, Melissa?
3: Well, I come from a family of teachers. Okay. And so I was going to break the mold. And I became a college professor instead of a, ah. <laughs> of a K-12 educator. Yeah. Um. I specialized in curriculum and instruction, and I was at Purdue. I always partnered with people in engineering because Purdue is a huge engineering school. I was on a grant that was ending. I almost moved to a dream job in, in Michigan at this big national center that did educational evaluation. Um, family illness kept me here. So I interviewed with Gene Spafford, who I consider to be one of the pioneers of cybersecurity. And he has a cybersecurity center at Purdue. This is 2000. And he hires me to work on cybersecurity education. At at this point in time, he hired another woman. Her name was Judy. He said, Melissa, you're going to worry about every educating anybody who's over the age of 18. And Judy, you're going to work on anybody who's under the age of 18. (laughs) That was as much direct is it, yeah, yeah. Awesome. I'm not sure who got the better That's deal, but you, you know. get all the
2: left-handed people, you get all the right-handed people.
3: Right-handed. Yeah, There was as much direction as we got. This is 2000. Like at that point in time, there were seven universities in the country that were CAE schools, you know, known for educating people, in yeah. cybersecurity. Purdue being one of the first seven. Yeah. So it was the early days. Um, so anyway, I took the job knowing nothing about cybersecurity. And I just started getting busy, um, partnering with other universities, helping them grow their cybersecurity programs. Um, I worked on faculty development. I had funding from NSF and then from NSA, two different times to bring in college faculty. Um, Cause you know, back in the early days, they were doing exactly what they're doing in high school now. We're taking mm-hmm. business professors or IT professors or computer science professors, computer engineering professors, and they were upskilling them to be cybersecurity professors. Nobody, and how is that nobody could have a cybersecurity graduate degree because none existed yet? Yeah. So
1: on that approach, you know, the upskilling of, of faculty members. How do you think that worked out? I guess that's where you got to start. You got to start somewhere.
3: Well, now now people can get a PhD, a concentration in cybersecurity. We still don't have enough new faculty coming out of, you know, to go into professorships, but but you can get that PhD. Um, At the time, I think it was the right thing for the right time, Ernie. We Mm -hmm. literally brought faculty to campus. They spent summer school. They spent eight weeks with us. They took 11 credit hours in eight weeks. It, they went back to school.
1: Yeah. Uh, I wonder if it's kind of like Rodney Dangerfield, right? There was uh, going back to school. I think
3: sometimes they felt like that.
1: I, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. in
3: touch with many of them to this day because it was a really immersive bonding experience. <laughs> you had to bond yeah. to survive. And then they went back to their home institutions and they started cybersecurity courses and minors and then majors. and. They helped it grow at their institutions, so you know they were like the seed corn. Yeah, yeah. What I was, can say that I'm in Indiana.
2: <laughs> what was yeah. what was the profile of someone who would come in the in the early 2000s to a program like this? What what, what animated or motivated them to pursue this?
3: Um, so most of them were either CS or IT professors. At their home institution. And for whatever reason, they were feeling the need to start a cybersecurity course. And they had heard about it. You know, we just put it out on the wire, you know, through ACM listservs and ASWE stuff like that. And so they had heard about it. And then they would put together their application. And when they put together their application, they had to say why they were wanting to come. I mean, this was. 2002. So I can't remember what they said in those letters. Why when I think, but. Um, so I think it was the right thing at the, at the right time. Um, so real quick, how I got from there, which is the early two thousands to a, a nonprofit, you know, around 2015, I got asked to join two projects that were high school cybersecurity education. And it had been interesting. So almost all of the cybersecurity education started at the graduate level. And then we went through the era of it growing down to the bachelor's degree. About 2010, 11, 12, you really started to see it start at the associate's degree. So here we are in 2015. And I join a project funded by NSF to weave more cybersecurity into that advanced placement computer science principles course, and then GenCyber.
1: The summer cam- the uh, NSA summer camp program. The
3: summer camps. So at the time that that happened, that I joined those two projects, I thought of them as being like a field trip into K-12 cybersecurity education. And so I got asked to do these two projects and I thought, well, that'll be interesting. You know, I'd done graduate, undergraduate, curriculum development, faculty development, instructional development, assessment work. I'd done everything. I just hadn't been in the K-12 space. So I joined these two projects. I think it's going to be a field trip. I'm going to go do these few projects. I'll come back on the bus. I'll be Professor Dart. And instead, you know, it was a fork in the road. Instead... Mm -hmm. I found I really got the bug. The projects kept growing in scope. I kept managing that growth by taking unpaid leaves of absence from Purdue. And finally, I thought, I don't know, maybe I'm going to take the ultimate, you know, leave of absence. Yeah. Um, and that's what I do.
2: What is it about that challenge, Melissa, for you that, that made that the right thing?
3: I'm a starter. Okay. I, I'm, I'm not a maintainer. I've always known that about myself. I, I like to start new things. Um, I thought it is, I thought about leaving, you know, really, it was like three years ago, exactly this time that I was making the decision. And so I'm weighing everything. And I thought to myself, I might have eight to 10 more years in my career. You know, I've got a lot of experience. I've got a lot of um, passion and and know-how about what to do that I learned from helping grow cybersecurity across universities and community colleges. And I thought if I I could use that to help grow cybersecurity in K-12 at Purdue, which is not the central mission of Purdue University. (laughs) Purdue is an R1. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Their central mission is not growing K-12 cybersecurity education. Um, And I thought, you know, if I decided to leave Purdue, I could do this 150% and not 15%. Mm -hmm.
2: What is it? So So there's one thing to say, um, Melissa, that, okay, you're going to work on curriculum design to add the, the cyber component to an existing ap curriculum Mm -hmm. and then it's another to say we're going to develop something for k to fifth graders how does that how are those challenges different you know those are two different audiences for for where you're designing how do you approach those problems
3: so i i think we just started the littlest you know just the edge of your little toe in the pond on middle school um cuz cuz one thing about what i'm focused on i want to focus on cybersecurity education and cybersecurity literacy. I really mm-hmm. am not so much focused on digital citizenship or cyber safety.
1: So cybersecurity literacy and digital citizenship what's the what's the difference?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And i've been and i wish i could say boom, here's exactly the answer in a nice neat, you know, package for you. But what I'll tell you, my current thinking is I frequently see digital citizenship taught as like a set of behaviors. Mm. And as long as you do these X things, these 12 things, you're a good digital citizen. I think literacy is a little bit different. Usually when we think about making somebody literate, it's something that is a foundational skill that they they understand something well enough that they carry it with them for life. It's not a set of terminal behaviors, you know. So I think you could teach a set of terminal behaviors as an on-ramp to literacy, but I think you could also just teach a set of terminal behaviors as a dead end. And it's not an on-ramp to anything.
1: It, it, it it's almost like uh uh, when it, when they're teaching a foreign language, you can take the conversational version of it, and then there's the actual no kidding foreign language. And the conversational, you learn, you know, how to order off a menu rather yeah. than the converse. The other one is you can go and you can go to that country and actually survive and get along <laughs> and understand and, and and read their literature and know what it and know what it means. So yeah, I, I I get that because I think that's where. There is a big difference in that. I think when you talked about the citizenship, there is a time and place for. Yeah, this is how you got to do it. But it's building that the thinking behind it, so that you can understand, so that you can effectively uh, navigate your way through. I'll call it complex cyber situations Mm -hmm. that we're all living in because it's 21st century, and you got something in there. But it's not just well. I know I can't. I I know I. I just I can't. I I need to change my password. Understanding. Well, what's the password do? What is that? You know, how does that play into things? Understanding that—that's—that's that's basically showing somebody that's who you are, and understanding that. So that's—that's that's a little bit different. That I—I I, I see where that difference applies. Yeah.
3: Sam, I'm, I'm, pro- I'm making yeah. some progress. <laughs> yeah. See, not just,
1: not just
2: not just a hat rack here. I can actually uh, you actually use it. How is that course. in terms of developing the curriculum for the high school students? You have the literacy, which is applicable to everybody, right? Because we all are going to yeah. live with that. But then you have the what, what? What would be the op the the companion term for that for technical competence for folks who are going to go on to become you know analysts and risk professionals and, and and work in or around the cyber field? Is that competence or what is that side of the coin?
3: Well, let's call it competence. Okay. You know for for now, and really that's mostly where we've been. Okay. It has been in that space. The literacy piece is newer for us. And we are really trying to think about how you could introduce that in the middle school. So I I, I mentioned earlier, I'm a starter. I like to start things. So we started a project called Teach Cyber a couple of years ago, which is the competency piece. It's instructional materials. It's teacher support. We use cyber range um, a couple of different cyber ranges for students to be able to work in a safe sandboxed environment. Oh, wow! But that's aimed at competency. Our, our newest project that we're we're dreaming up for the middle school is called Live Cyber. That's the literacy piece: learn, investigate, value, and affect change. Live Cyber.
1: So, are there other disciplines that? that you can draw on as parallels for, for the literacy. I, I mean, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, like high school or not high school, middle school, you know, science, you need have, you, you had little bits of chemistry here and there. Um, it, but is there, is there a similar way that you could uh, apply that to, to cyber? Is it, I mean, is it standalone, uh, or is it Ernie, integrated into like, Ernie, your we want to recruit you or? on
3: our middle school team. <laughs> <laughs> because we're just getting started and you're asking great questions. Um, and I need to say, I, live cyber. The brains behind that acronym is not me. It's, it's Sabrina Smiley, who's part of our team. Um, but you are asking all the right questions. What, what can we learn from other fields yeah. to try to figure out how you build meaningful literacy? I think the middle school is the right space. Um, you know, to try to do that. I think if you build meaningful literacy in the middle school, hopefully you can do a lot of good for a lot of people and then early introduce that subset of people who want to go on for the competency Mm -hmm. in high school.
2: There's been so much about, for for even middle school students in, in the high school about coding and about coding literacy and about coding competence And, you know, everyone gets a little exposure to it now. And then there's unlocks in high school for, you know, public high schools throughout the country in terms of now being able to access either as part of a core curriculum or an enrichment coding. Is the cyber competence a part of that? Is it something separate? Are you you teaching that ultimately will these curricula be addressing the same students? Where does it link in with with what's happening Mm -hmm. with coding?
3: So I I think that there's both an... Um, an intellectual answer to that and then i think that there's an institutional answer to that
2: <laughs> and never never the twain shall
1: be- never
3: the, twain <laughs> shall meet. That's the same right. kids
2: it's the same kids yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah they're gonna have a job probably kids, kids. It, yeah
3: it is the same kids and there's definitely i you know i don't think i i see a lot of overlap between computer science and cybersecurity, but they're not fundamentally the same thing. Yeah. You would teach a lot of stuff in cybersecurity that you would not teach in computer science. Yeah. But I think that there is a body of knowledge that both share. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I believe that. Um, you know, it gets a little tricky in high school computer science. <clears throat> this is the institutional stuff. <clears throat> it's not just high school, right? Like back at Purdue, we had a computer science department that was in one college. We had a computer engineering department that was in another college. We had a management information systems department that was in another college. Yeah. And then we had an <laughs> IT department that was in, yes, a fourth college. Oh. Oh. Um, it made for very nice I'm sure
2: volleyball they- brackets, though, at the picnics.
3: <laughs> yeah. just
2: too yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there's it was always, always one winner.
0: Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> is it Carnegie Mellon that has just the iSchool? I'm not sure. You know, besides,
1: yeah, it they, sounds familiar. They
3: Carnegie, IU, Bloomington, and maybe Cornell. They said this is just nonsense. Yeah, you know, and and they they merged them. But you see that same thing happening in high school. Computer science sometimes lives in math. Sometimes it lives in computer science. Sometimes it lives in CTE. Um, sometimes it lives in business. So, what do you think drives that?
1: That decision making around that, and then is human beings. Yeah, is it more of the the old old school? uh, uh,
3: You know, I I think of those lines. I live in Indiana, and I can get in my car today and I can drive an hour west and I can be in Illinois. There's no real line that I cross, you guys. It's it's pretend. That's an invisible line. What?
1: It's, that's crazy.
3: We can't have that. <laughs>
1: yeah. Quick, somebody draw a line.
3: That Get in, some paint. That invisible line has all sorts of real implications, Yeah. you know, but it's not a real line. That's kind of where we are, this conversation about computing and cybersecurity. Yeah. It,
1: yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's an arbitrary line that was drawn for the sake of
2: drawing a line. Yeah. What do you, What do you think of programs like, I'm just fascinated that both, that Melissa, that both you and Ernie were, you guys knew about the NSA summer camp. I had no idea that the NSA had a summer <laughs> camp called Gen Cyber. You know, it sounds, I was going to say, it sounds cooler than it is. It's not like <laughs> you
1: get together. It's, it's, okay.
2: it's, it's, it sounds very cool. So let's just go ahead and just, it does, you're does. already up here. So even if it's slightly less cool than it sounds, there's a lot yeah. of room. Yeah. But that's like, a it's lot done. of it's done through enrichment. And so enrichment's only accessible to some kids. It's like a program like that. I'm imagining it's like space camp, but underground. And it might not be that, Ernie. Let's just pretend it is.
1: Did I tell you about the NSA bunker no. complex? Out in but, I told but is you about that, that yeah. right? but,
2: Melissa, is that okay? Like, it, does it start with enrichment programs? You test them there for kids who are really motivated and then you bring them into schools? Like, is that the journey that sometimes these curricula take? Or is that not a good thing? You don't want to start it. Test it one off.
3: Um, I, I do think that a lot of cybersecurity has started as enrichment or also just called out of school time activities. Okay. OST. Okay. Um, and, and part of that is not just because you want to test it before you bring it into the curriculum, but we have a crowded curriculum. K-12 schools have a crowded curriculum. They're already trying to teach a lot. We, we've got that mm. same problem I was talking about 20 years ago in, in college. Where are If a school wanted to teach a cybersecurity pathway, where is it going to hire a qualified teacher? Where do these teachers get the skills and the knowledge? They, they're not going to go like teacher colleges or education programs don't have cybersecurity education like they have. Math education or English
2: education? Yeah. Not yet. Melissa, uh, thank you. We're going to take a short break now. Uh, When we return, Ernie will put you through the lifestyle polygraph. So please stay with us, everyone.
0: You're listening to the No Password Required Podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff.
1: Okay, everybody, welcome back. Melissa, as you may know, in the national security community, uh, those that are entrusted with some of the greatest national security secrets have to undergo something that is known as the lifestyle polygraph, that is determined, that is used to understand and determine their acceptability for high level access to very sensitive information. F- On our show,
3: fitness for duty.
1: That's right. Yeah. On our show, we subject our guests to something equally intrusive and ask very probing questions to get into your mind, to understand a little bit about what uh, makes you tick and how you think. So that said, are you ready for the lifestyle polygraph? No. Well, that's okay. (laughs) Because, because, because we already sent you the t-shirt. So I'm sorry. That's, that's the cost.
3: (laughs) I gotcha. All
1: right, here we go. Here we go. It's a series of five questions. We're going to start off, but here's question number one, question number one. What is a topic that you wish you had a much deeper understanding of?
3: That's an easy one. Comparative religious history.
2: C- comparative religious history. Mm-hmm. Really? Maybe an easy answer, uh, but not an easy topic. Th- Melissa. Th- that's right. What, what interests you in that? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Everything. What is that to yeah. be interested in? That, all of it. <laughs> Um, I was just, I was just talking to my team earlier today. We were talking about data visualization. So if, cause I think comparative religious history would be like starting all over again, I'd have to go do a bachelor's degree and then a master's and then a PhD is probably unachievable in the what you know, I time I got left. So maybe I could take a, a data visualization course. There's another topic I'd like to know more about,
1: or or maybe if you could visualize uh, religious history, maybe combine the two. I don't know how you would do that. Uh, There's probably we can throw some buzz phrases. It could be some uh, machine learning involved.
3: (laughs) But yeah, those are my two data visualization comparative religious history.
2: I I got someone offered me a a World Book Encyclopedia maybe about five years ago an old one they were going to get rid of it. It was from the mid seventies and it was very cool. And I went, I looked at it and I was like, all right, we took a couple of the, like the books that were associated with it. And one was called world religions. And it was essentially a textbook and it had five world religions. And I'm not going to say which ones are in there and which ones weren't, but it was pretty awesome to read this thing. And, and, and also to think about how dated a book, even from the mid seventies is in comparative religion to today and how these institutions, some have been with us for millennia, but how different yeah. they are, even in the last fifty years. So I, I could see how we could it could absorb all time in study. You really could devote a huge amount I have of time.
3: Nice, I have a nice little book. I'm sure it's out of date now, but it was. It's on um, religion in India. Um, you know they're polytheistic, and and still not what some people call big box religion. You know, so yeah. you still, you know, it's it's anyway. At the time I read this book, which was about 10 years ago um local practices and customs were still much more common and accepted um but i'm sure it's changed a lot just in 10 years because the the big religions continue to you know try to be bigger
1: i wonder if there'll be a resurgence like we've seen with uh, you know with like uh, etsy and some of the uh you know, smaller stores, so to speak, the mom and pops taking on the Home Depots and the WalMarts. And you know, I wonder if we're going to see that in the religion, uh, religion side of the house. It, well, hey, Jack, maybe that's maybe that's could be you. That could be your, you. Could become a start your own.
2: I've always thought that you know? I would like the job of being a, a, you know, it, it, but for the belief part. Like I think it would be really cool to be a pastor of a small community because you're like the captain of a ship, sort of. Mm-hmm. And But you're also the servant. You're like the highest ranked and the lowest ranked person, which I think is a cool, whoever can do that job, I think is someone really special because they're, they're, they're both in charge, but also immediately at a moment's notice, we'll go to a parishioner's house and take care of them at three in the morning. So it's mm-hmm. that, that calling is a special calling. Not yeah. unlike being a cybersecurity attorney, Ernie.
1: Yeah, but Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay, here we go. Question number two, question number two, where is the best place to travel if your goal is to learn more about yourself?
3: Mm. For me, it's any place that there's woods.
1: If you had to pick a woods, uh, rainforest, tropical hardwood hammock, Mm. uh, coniferous uh, alpine forest, all of the above. All of the above. Don't ask me why I know these different. <laughs>
3: um, one of the best, <laughs> um, it's a temperate rainforest. Um, one of the best rainforests I've ever been in, in my life was um, by, sick, you know, Sitka, Alaska, which used to be mm. the capital of Alaska when it was Russian territory.
0: Oh, wow.
3: Um, but it is so thriving with life. That there are rotted out tree stumps with new trees growing out of them. <laughs> it's just like you get into this rainforest and you can just feel, you know, the life, the, the, the heartbeat of the life. It's, it was amazing.
1: All right. Okay, here we go. Number three. Number three. What's a positive life experience or a moment? that you'd want to experience again. And you can't say being on this podcast because (laughs) we know know that that's an important, that's a life-changing moment for a lot of people. I went in
3: 2016, I went with my youngest daughter and there was another um, set of kids in a youth group. We went over to Zimbabwe on a mission trip. So I was staying with this family and I wanted to cook dinner. And so they said, yes, we go to the grocery store. I get over to their house and I walk in the backyard and they've got an outdoor cooking hut. And I think, oh no, oh crap. I don't know how to cook a dinner for everybody in a, in a cooking hut, you know, but I don't say anything. And I walk in the back door and I'm really thankful because there's this small two burner stove. And so I just use the stove. I chicken out. I don't do the cooking. (laughs) Okay. So they're so thankful for dinner. I agree to make dinner the next night. I still use the stove. So we leave that town. We go to the next town and we're visiting um, an orphanage. And we get done. And I said, it would be really nice to make dinner. This is like becoming my assumed role on this trip, you know, the cook. Okay. The cook. cook. And so I think it would be really nice to make dinner. And so I say to the guy who's running the the trip, you know, I'd like to offer to make dinner. He said, well, which house? Because an orphanage has like 10 different houses, each one with a house mother and then about eight to 10 kids. And I said, well, I don't think I could pick a house. And he said, well, you're not going to cook for the for the whole orphanage, are you? And I said, well, could we maybe? Um, so I recruit all of my daughter and all of the other young kids to be sous chef. And we decide, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to cook for the whole group. Yeah. So it literally becomes going out and buying the, the live chickens still, you know, and then wow. going to the market and, and buying the the Groceries, it's gonna be chicken and noodles, um, and deviled eggs.
1: Okay. That's the universal, the universal hors d'oeuvre, right? Which there. they have yeah.
3: never had. There yeah. were, you could, I could have had five times as many deviled eggs, and it would not have been enough. Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> introducing deviled egg <laughs> to the people of Zimbabwe.
3: Yes. And, and so I get to there, I get to the orphanage that day and I'm talking to grace who is the head mother of all of them. And I tell her I've got everything and I'm ready to start cooking. And she says, all right. And I said, well, just show me the kitchen. And she said, just one problem. I said, what's that? She says, the electricity's out.
2: Oh, my
1: goodness. Hopefully it's a guest
3: stove. <laughs> said, really? What am I going to do? And she says, well, you're going to have to use the cooking hut. Oh, wow. Right? So now here I am. Ch- two chicken to cook for 10 people in the cooking hut. But I'm going to cook for about 140 <laughs> in the cooking hut. And it was absolutely magical. I would turn and I would say to Grace, OK, I think I'm going to need a really big pot to put all these chickens in full of water. Yeah. And like 10 minutes later, here would come a woman with a pot on her head full of water, wow. just out of nowhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is just how the afternoon went. And, you know, so you start cooking. Um it was way too hot. It turned into like thick soup. The, the noodles. Completely- <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't think it mattered. Though. Yeah, and, then, and the electricity's still out. Yeah. Right. And so it, it's turning dark. And we're finally ready to eat. Somebody pulls up their car. They shine headlights. Those, that's the only light we have. In addition to the fire from the cooking hut. It turns on the music leaves the radio going in the truck. So we got music, we got lights, we got food. And I said, okay, I think we're ready. And so they, they bring them in in ages from the littlest up, you know, the oldest people eat last. And by the time all was said and done, the entire cooking hut was full of people sitting on the floor, on the sides of the half wall eating and talking and the lights were going and the music was playing. And it was a pretty awesome day.
1: That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I
3: would, I would relive that day. I would also relive the day each one of my kids were born.
1: Yeah. I don't know how to top that. Um, Cause that's a great story. And <laughs> uh, but we have another, we, have, we, we must, but we must continue to press on. And you know, here it is. Question number four, is it possible to be successful? and unhappy
3: probably depends on how you define success if contentment is part of your equation for success then no but if like having all of the money in the world and i don't care how content i am is your equation for success then sure
1: yeah it's a deep philosophical question i guess we have to and this is where Jack would come in because he'd be breakout. When we say successful, according to so and so v such and such, sure. success was defined by I was
3: just talking to it if you know my, one of my other colleagues that I work with, she says she found a new philosopher, mediocrities.
2: Mediocrates, <laughs> 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 yes. That's awesome. <laughs> yes, that's yes. awesome. Yeah, the 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 stoic. Eh, this-
3: good
1: enough. <laughs> good enough.
2: The Stoics are having a revival on TikTok, you know, because it's it's a way of dealing with adversity as if it was a test or a charm. So th- it, that mediocrity is, is one that I think I I like. My wife and I call that just doing a B-plus job. Yeah. Not an yeah. A. It's not a C. It's a B-plus. Just yeah, do your best. Eh, you know, could we, yeah. you know, yeah, could that children's birthday party have had more balloons? Sure could have. But you know what? We're not going for the A here. The B+ here. That's right. We don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, you know, in your career in in academics, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, did you see colleagues who had the balance right, or see colleagues who had the balance wrong? You know, who, you know, who let it, who let time pass them by? I mean, I know it can be an all-consuming thing sometimes, and at a big, you know, prominent university like Purdue, I'm sure you saw all all kinds of different careers.
3: Yeah, I did. You know, I always think that the the people I looked up to most somehow at least appeared to me to still really have their balance, you know, and not just, you know, there's the appearance of of balance and then there's the sense that somebody's really balanced. You know, you can, you can feel it from them.
2: Yeah. We always say there's a lot of folks who you might see in, uh, out and about who say that they're involved in their children's lives and you know, their kids are young and, and they don't have a car seat, a booster in their car. And you're like, where's the booster in your car? If you're involved, show me the <laughs> booster drive for, I want to go for a ride in the car and I want to see something in the car that indicates to me, you have children, people.
3: This is the lifestyle polygraph. Right
2: <laughs> That's right. That's right. You're not Confined to another automobile, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Moving along. Number five,
1: the fifth and final question. Which would you say you are better at working with? A keyboard or power tools?
3: I really want to say power tools, but I'm not that good at them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, I think, the majority of humanity is just not very, they, they, they really like having them they like to use them, but they probably... Oh, no, listen, I, sure, I can use this drill to cut things. That's fine.
3: <laughs> I I really am such an amateur. Um, I love it, though. You know, I, I but I'm such an amateur. I'm such a, a hack. Sometimes <laughs> I walk around and I look at my baseboard. You know, I did on my baseboard. I walk around oh, and nice. I look at my baseboard. I go, man, I think, you know by the time it's hard it's hard work it's precision work you know so then i start to get that i'm just not that good so mediocrities takes over and i go
1: (laughs) (laughs) not a square angle in this house is there
2: do, do you do like a project like that like a baseboard given all the stuff you have going on do you do a baseboard project you know block out a weekend and just do it or does it a little bit do you do a little bit over the course
3: of weeks or months I haven't done a big house project for a while because I'm not a person who can spread it out. Okay. So I usually only take on projects when I know I can do them. I I can't stand for stuff to sit undone.
2: What's some of the stuff that you've done, you know, over time in your history? uh,
3: Like in, in this house that I'm in, I did, that's why I had to take all the baseboard up and put it all back down again is because I redid the the whole floor. I put down a (laughs) big.
1: God, listen, that's, a, that's, What? A, oh, wow. Okay. Now, did, now, did you put the, uh, I mean, hardwood in the, the, did you have, now, did you do the click lock or did you have to do the, put the glue down and nail it or.
3: So I have, I have done in the house that I lived in before we put down hardwood. Wow. Um, and I, you know, it was, it was tongue and groove hardwood unfinished. Oh. I was. Right. So. Yeah. You, know, you put the biscuits in the ends. Yeah,
1: yeah, you yeah. You get the
3: big, the pneumatic nail gun, and um, but I didn't go quite that labor intensive where I'm at right now. I did a a tongue and groove, really nice to install bamboo floor. How do you?
2: I mean, with all the things you've done, how did you learn <laughs> to do this?
3: My dad was really handy. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, So I learned most of it, you know, from oh, him. Okay.
1: I've, I've learned that if I do it myself, um, I have to buy the materials. I put, I put the, I install them. Um, then I have to go buy the materials again and pay somebody else to do it <laughs> uh, and take up the stuff I just put down. So sometimes I just, I, I cut to the chase and, uh, you know, <laughs> just have somebody else come and do I'm it.
3: I'm no good at electrical. I'm... Well, yeah, you got to be
1: careful with electrical. That's one of those things, you know. Yeah, I, I'm like, uh, uh, was it Michael Keaton? 220, 225, whatever it takes. Uh, yeah, you don't want to mess with electricity because that can, th- yeah, if you get that wrong, you can, you can really hurt yourself and you can probably set your house on fire. if
2: You're not careful, yeah.
3: So keyboard, final answer, Ernie.
2: <laughs> Key- <laughs> keyboard it is, <laughs> <laughs> keyboard it is. I like watching somebody who's good at typing I fancy myself a fairly good word processor and typer, but someone will show me like a keyboard shortcut and I'm just like, wait a minute, what was that? Did you just do control backspace? And like, I I have a capacity to be amazed by keyboard. I I don't know. It, it goes with the professions. Is,
3: all but like but listen, so back to whatever the first question was compared <laughs> to religious and data <laughs> visualization. If this cybersecurity nonprofit doesn't work out, I might think about starting to flip houses because then I could do more power tools. Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> there you go. There you go.
3: Plan <laughs> A, B, C, D. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, with that,
3: that's fantastic.
1: We'll be looking forward to you on the uh, uh, the HG network, uh, uh, You know, flipping houses with Dr. Dark. Um, thanks so much for joining us. If our listeners <laughs> wanted to connect with you, uh, how can that, how can our listeners connect with you? Um, you have a social media or just, uh, just, you know, shout out into the, into the wilderness and you'll hear it there.
3: Depends if they're in the woods or not.
1: That's true. <laughs> That's true. If you yell in the woods and no one's listening.
3: They're in actually. the woods and I'm there, then I will hear it. Um, mm. th- no, I really don't use social media. Purposeful choice there. Um, i emails just the easiest way to get me, Ernie. There you go. Melissa.dark at darkenterprisesinc.com. Inc. I-N-C. Not like, not like, not like, not
1: not like in a pen. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that brings us to the end of our program. And thank you so much for joining us. First and foremost, I have to thank my co-host, Jack Clabby. I'd also like to say thank you to our guest, Dr. Melissa Dark who took us on a field trip through the history of cybersecurity education and around the world and uh, made us have a new appreciation for what deviled eggs can do to bring a little joy into the, to the hearts of others. So that said, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the No Password Required Podcast. You can find us on social media at nopasswordpod and send your questions or comments to info at nopasswordpodcast.com. And if you'd like some show swag, just ask and we'll hook you up. I'm Ernie Ferresso. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk again soon.
0: Thank you for listening to the No Password Required podcast. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. A special thanks goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields and Second Watch. If you would like to learn more about the show, visit our website at cyberflorida.org pod. And if you still need more show content, check out our social media at No Password Pod.